Hi, friends. Welcome to The Faithful Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Baker. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. You can find me at faithfulpodcast.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at faithfulpodcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a few moments and leave me a review on iTunes. Reviews are super important and they help other people find the podcast so that it can be a blessing to them. This is part one of two of my interview with Lauren Scurry. Lauren is a sweet friend that I met during my time at Texas A&M University. She shares about her experience with the stillbirth of her daughter, June. I know that her story is one that many people can identify with, and although it's incredibly sad, she shares so much hope. So here is part one of my interview with Lauren. Thanks so much for joining me today, Lauren. I'm really excited to chat with you. I know. I'm so excited to be here. I, I know. It's been a really long time since we've talked. And um, it has, you know, you've always been somebody that I looked up to and that I admired. And, you know, it's funny in the days of social media how we feel like we know people and <laughs> they don't even know how much of the us that we know about them yeah. sometimes, or it, it's it's a funny situation sometimes. But. It's been fun reconnecting with you for sure. Oh, it's it's all my pleasure. But um, I'm so excited to just kind of hear what all you have to say about um, your journey and your time that um, you've been going through in the past couple of years and what God has been teaching you. And I know that everybody else is going to really enjoy it too. So. So um, just start off, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do we need to know about you, Lauren? Okay. Um, well, I currently live in Plano um, with my family, my husband. Of Goodness, we've been married 12 years, almost 13. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, yeah, 2007. <laughs> yeah, almost 13 years. Okay. So long ago. Um, I mean, and that's like, I knew you before that. So. Right. It's been a long time for us. And so, um, yeah, 13 years almost. And we have um, three beautiful daughters. Um, I have twin six-year-old girls. They're in kindergarten. They're really fun. It's such a fun age. Yeah. A little crazy, but fun. (laughs) Um, And then we have a baby. Um, She just turned uh, one in January. Yeah, earlier this month, and um, her name is Shelby. So we have Eleanor, Maggie, and Shelby. Mm -hmm. And um, I work as a speech pathologist at an elementary school. Awesome. And let's see, we go to Citizens Church um, in Plano. Um, It's formerly the Village Church Plano. Okay. So we branched off recently um, in August to be our own autonomous church. Okay. Which has been great, so... That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I love the name Shelby, and it always makes me think of Steel Magnolias. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> we get that a lot. Do you? Yeah. That's not far from why I wanted to name her that. I just love that name, too, and I love that movie. Oh, I've seen that movie um, a billion times. I still love it. <laughs> yeah. So, Classic. yeah, definitely. So, tell us about how you came to know Jesus. Well, um, I'd say I came to know about Jesus because I had parents who loved Jesus. Mm. Um, They didn't just take me to church. Um, I remember my dad sitting me and my um, sister. Okay. Thank you. 
<laughs> Sorry. We might need to cut that out. Somebody came yeah. in my office. <laughs> yeah. Um, We're very professional here. Everybody should know that. <laughs> I, you know, I'm recording in our extra bedroom. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> well, I came here to be alone and apparently I'm not on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyways, um, yeah, so I came to know about Jesus um, because of my parents. They loved Jesus. They We had a loving Christian household. My dad would sit my sister and I down on the floor and, and teach us about Jesus. I, like, I remember the books. Um, I remember him telling us Bible stories. He taught our... Um, he taught some of my Sunday school classes with the felt, you know, felt characters and all of that. Aww, he, yeah, love those. Um, all of that from the beginning. It's just uh, what I knew to be true. Mm. Um, I would say I probably came to know Jesus um, after losing my daughter. Mm. And um, I just think there's a difference between knowing of someone and truly knowing someone. I think it takes an experience and sometimes, unfortunately, a trial or some pain to really, um, get to know someone. And so, um, God was, um, generous enough and loving enough to put me through something like that so that I could get to know him in a deeper way. So, um, tell us a little bit about, um, about the loss of your daughter. Yeah. So in 2017 in November, I had, um, I gave, I had a stillborn daughter. Her name was June and, um, she was born stillborn at 25 weeks. And so, um, um, and we can go into the story of that right now if you'd like. Yeah. Um, Um, yeah, I think that, I think that would be, um, if if you're okay with sharing all that, of course. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, that's why I'm here. So in August of 2017, um, we went in for our 11-week sonogram, um, our first sonogram, and we were told that our baby had a cystic hygroma, and um, which was like a, a cyst of fluid on the back of the neck, um, traveling all the way down to the back of the, the top of the bottom. Mm. Um, and it was a pretty... Um, no normal pregnancy up until then. Um, and you know, the cystic hygroma could mean a lot of different things. Um, but most of the time it points to like a chromosomal abnormality, like Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, trisomy 13 or trisomy 18 or, um, any other kind of rare syndrome. Um, and so we were, you know, told that we, he didn't really know what was going on. Like my husband and I, you know, my mom and my daughters were at that appointment too. And they were excited to see the baby. And, and so, um, they left the room. My husband and I were just kind of like holding hands and hanging on every word the doctor was saying, although none of it stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would, the thing we remember most is that he said there was a 75% chance that something is significantly wrong with our baby's development. Yeah. And so at that point, they wanted to do more testing um, to kind of see what what was going on. Mm. And so um, through that, like, um, I remember I went to the bathroom crying. We were waiting to do the testing. And so um, I cried and I pleaded with God. Um, And I asked him not to leave my baby. I asked him not to leave me. And I 
don't know why I was worried. I was never worried before about God abandoning me, but that was the first thing that came to my mind is like, if I can do this, God, I can go through a trial that's going to glorify you if you're with me, mm. but I can't do it without you. And I never asked why it was happening because I knew the answer. God had already kind of prepared my heart for this in different ways we can get into later. But yeah. like I knew that he must be glorified and I knew that, you know, ultimately that would be, that would come to be, he would be glorified. Um and so, um, so I left the appointment, you know, um, after doing a test, um, just with like a handout from a 1980s textbook about cystic hygroma and lots and lots of questions. Mm. Um, and so, um, after that appointment, we were able to find out actually that day that, um, the gender, and it was a girl. And, um, we decided to name her June Louise, which was the name that we had picked out, um, if we were ever going to have another girl. So that was kind of the plan. If it was a girl, it would be June Louise. Um, but at the same time, I knew that God was doing something and, um, we didn't really know what was happening and I wanted her to have a name that, you know, was meaningful. So we looked up the meaning and June means young and mm-hmm. Louise meant um, famous warrior. Mm-hmm. So she was our young warrior. Yeah. Um, so we just had so many questions during that time, you know, like what the diagnosis could be pointing to, what the prognosis would be, um, possible outcomes. So, you know, we, we just were in a state of perpetual waiting for a while with that. Yeah. And um, so we finally, I mean, I was going back to the doctor. Oh, and another detail in this whole thing, you know, we were not just waiting on a diagnosis. We we were also waiting um, just four days prior to this appointment. We had moved from Austin to Dallas. That's a pretty significant situation, a pretty significant Detail. Yes, we every, yeah. everything um, because my husband found a job. We didn't know why opportunities weren't opening up for us to stay in Austin, but um, I was grieving that. I was grieving leaving um, Austin. I was, you know, coming back to Dallas. I was excited because I was coming back to, we had lived in Dallas before, so friends and family. Um, but in the meantime, we were living with um, my mother-in-law, who it was, I mean, so loving and caring for her. I don't know what we would have done if we hadn't had her let us live with her. I mean, bless her heart, she gave us the master bedroom and, um, you know, really let us take over her house with our kids. But wow. it was a cramped space, and it wasn't my space. And um, we were going through all of this. We were waiting to sell our house um, in Austin. It wasn't selling. And we didn't know where we were going to end up living. We just knew where our jobs were. And they were all new at the time, too. Yeah. All the people in our life w- were new, except for a few you know, old friends. And so um, it, was, it was definitely kind of a, a trial period of waiting through that time. Um, but finally, through like, one last de- last ditch test, um, we received a diagnosis of Noonan syndrome, 
-hmm. So everything had come, all the, all the tests that had come back were seemingly looking like a pretty healthy baby girl. She was growing every time I went back to the doctor. I was going back every week for a sonogram. Mm -hmm. um, she was growing. Um, things were looking good. The hygroma actually looked like it was going down. All the tests were coming back negative. Um, we had so many people praying for us and praying for June during this time. And we finally got an answer, which you know, I, I guess made it a little bit more real, especially since Noonan syndrome is um, just a rare, very rare chromosomal abnormality yeah. uh, in which, you know, the, the life of the child with Noonan syndrome can look so different. You oh, know, okay. some are cognitively impaired and uh, very developmental delayed and won't be able to take care of themselves um, and might have heart difficulties and um and then some live a completely normal life and nobody would know the diagnosis and mm. so um so we you know didn't know but with that um diagnosis we were ready to roll up our sleeves and research and connect with community and figure things out and prepare for life outside the womb um, um so it really gave it, us a little bit of um you know fire under us to to figure out, you know, what would be best for her and right. where, where we're going to live and what hospitals we're going to be close to. And if she would have heart problems and all of these things. And so, um, we, we were trying to buy a home during that time too. And so there's all these things in consideration. Um, and so finally, um, on October 13th, um, at 22 weeks, we were told that she had developed high drops, mm. um, which is a um, high drops is when there's fluid that develops inside the internal chambers of the baby's body, mm. and um, it's always fatal. Yeah. And the doctor had mentioned it before that that is something that could happen when there is a cystic hygroma, but honestly, after getting the Noonan syndrome um, diagnosis and really focusing on that, we had forgotten about it. It wasn't something that the doctor brought up again because it didn't seem likely. Um, she was already 22 weeks. And so, right. so getting that information, I mean, that was it. Yeah. Came over. You know, and I was by myself at that appointment. It, I mean, things were going so well. Tom was not even going with me to the appointments at this time, you know. Right. Um, and so I was by myself and I felt just so helpless. And um, we went straight from that appointment directly to um, I, my high-risk specialist. And... In between that time, like Tom and I, he came and he got me and we had discussions and we kind of mustered up hope. And we were like, you know, we can put, put in a stint and we can drain it. And, you know, there's all these things that we've got to be able to do to be able to save our daughter. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we went to our, the high risk specialist, you know, we, we left that day with a pamphlet on how to remember your daughter or how to remember your baby. Mm -hmm. Um, and the pamphlet was talking about, you know, picking out funeral homes and if you're going to bury or if you're going to cremate and all of these things. And that was definitely a slap in the face of our hope. But yeah. I think it was it was a gesture 
that we needed at the time because she said that she had never seen high drops go past three weeks. So mm-hmm. she gave, gave us three weeks. And so those three weeks were the hardest weeks of my life. Um, I could still feel her kick, mm-hmm. you know, I could feel her move, but I knew she was dying. I would go back every two weeks, every two days for a sonogram because they didn't know when her heart would stop. Mm. And she would have a healthy heartbeat. And, um, you know, the doctors were preparing me. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. And um, I, you know, at at one point, and it sounds terrible, I just wanted it to end. You know, I was like, well, if this is going to, you know, if, if it is going to end, I need it to end. I cannot live in this in-between um, where I'm going to work every day still. A lot of my coworkers didn't know yet, mm. and they were congratulating me and asking me if it was a boy or a girl and talking about how great big sisters my daughters would be for this baby and um, all of that. And that was the hardest. Um, that was really it. And, and plus, I had lost all control over every area of my life. Um, I had no I mean, I had no choice but to, to surrender everything. I didn't have a home. You know, we didn't have control over um, where we were living, if we could sell our house, if we could, you know, where we we're going to buy our house. It was everything was out of my control. And so just pretty much like hands up in the air. Okay, God. And the only thing I could do during that time was cry or read the Psalms. Mm. And, um, yeah, that the Psalms got me through. I mean, I camped out in that book and just read them over and over and over again. I couldn't read anything else. Um, and so, um, my mind was like hyper-focused on how to remember her. Yeah. You know, and so we we're trying to decide if we we're going to bury or cremate, if we we're going to have um, a funeral or a service, you know, um, because after 16 weeks um, you have to give birth. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to give birth because I had had um, many surgeries on my um, uterus in the past, um, including C-sections. And yeah. um, so I had to have a C-section. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, preparing for that. And so during those three weeks, um, you know, we were able to make all of those decisions. It was such a weird place to be, um, knowing that your baby would die mm. and being able to prepare, though, for that in a way. Mm. And so, and sure enough, three weeks later on November 1st, there was no heart week, heartbeat. And we um, walked in the hospital two days later on November 3rd and had a C-section. We got to hold her and spend time with her. Mm. And um, it's really only by the grace of God that I had joy in that moment. Um, And give, you know, and we prayed over her. Um, We, you know, for a couple hours and then, you know, giving her body back is just, was just surreal, but we also knew that was not her right. and that she was in 
the arms of Jesus. Mm. I mean, how amazing is that? Like through this, an eternal life Mm. was birthed into the arms of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just, I mean, we can get into that in a little bit too, but, um, you know, in leaving the hospital without a baby, Stephanie, it's so hard. And I hadn't, I had thought every detail out to a T, Mm -hmm. um, but not that I had, I was not prepared for that. And, um, thankfully God placed the most amazing nurse with me that I had never seen before. She wasn't my nurse, but she came and to wheel me out. Yeah. And, um, this was, I guess we were in the hospital two days, um, afterwards recovering. And, um, she wheels me out to the place, kind of the threshold from the rooms, the hospital rooms to like the elevator where like life gets real. Yeah. And, um, she bent down and whispered in my ear. She said, hold your breath. This is the hardest part. Mm. And I was like, what is she talking about? And she went over the threshold and tears started just streaming down my face. And my arms had never felt so empty. Mm. And I didn't know that I was going to feel that. But God knew and God prepared, prepared me through that nurse. And I was just so grateful that he had put somebody there to validate my pain and validate my loss. Cause that's what people need right. when they're going through a loss, no matter how big or how small they need that validation that, that it, you know, it hurts. Yeah. You know, um, I worked as a labor and delivery nurse for many years and crazy stuff. yeah, you told me that the other day. Yeah. And that's, um, I've, I mean, I've, I've gone through this experience with a lot of patients mm. and like, um, I, even as you're talking about it, I'm, I'm like, I mean, we've talked, we've talked about this, we've prepared for this, but I'm still like crying and I can't tell how many patients I cried with and prayed with, um, just through such a difficult thing. Cause I, I can't imagine. And it's that I hadn't even thought about. I always worked labor and delivery. So mm-hmm. they yeah. usually go to a postpartum area after. So I hadn't even thought about the going home because I had just been there with them through right. what to me seemed like the hardest part, like delivering right. and holding. And I hadn't really given much thought to that part. But yeah, um, I hadn't either. And so, yeah. and then, you know, I had my my body was preparing to nurse, you oh, know, yeah. my milk had come in and all of that. And so, you know, every three hours, instead of nursing a baby, I put ice packs on. Mm. And it was a tangible way of lamenting for me. It actually ended up almost being therapeutic for me. Yeah. Um, just to stay in that grief. I needed to stay in the grief for a while. And I think that kind of helped me. So odd as that sounds. Yeah. I mean, but it, it, I, I get that everybody's like grief and everybody's um, dealing with that grief looks, looks different. And, you know, you wouldn't think that the reminder of, of nursing would be what does it, but um, God knows exactly what we really need and, and gives us 
sometimes things that are super hard, even, you know, after the initial loss, just to, to keep reminding us to return to him and to stay mm -hmm. in him and abide. Mm -hmm. So um, can you tell me um, a little bit about how this uh, loss affected your family? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously we had a lot of other circumstances going on at the time, um, which I kind of talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, just in the waiting, you know, we just grew, I feel that we grew closer. I mean, there were so many of those circumstances coming at us at one time where we just had each other. That's literally right. all we had in God, you know, we had each other, um, parenting through that. Um, my girls were three, wow. they turned four, like shortly after that. Mm -hmm. And so they had so many questions, but it really opened up so many amazing conversations for us to talk about Jesus in heaven mm. with Maggie and Eleanor, ways we would never be able to before. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think it was a high stress time, but I also think that it was good that we were stripped of our responsibilities in a house, you know, mm -hmm. at that time, like I wasn't doing housework, you know, I was just spending time with my family when mm -hmm. I wasn't at work. Um, and I don't know, it was like, we kind of were just forced to kind of be together and get through it together. And then be in close quarters with these three-year-olds when all of this is happening and yeah. Tom and I are having really important, heavy conversations and making heavy decisions, mm -hmm. you know, um, having to explain everything that we could in three-year-old terms. Mm. Um, and so like, I remember telling Maggie and Eleanor, um, we sat them down and my husband had said, you know, when baby June is born, she's not going to come home and live with us. <sighs> and, um, Eleanor I, I, mean, I remember she was like, why? And started crying and Maggie gasped. Mm. And, um, and we said, she's going to go to heaven and she's going to be born and she's going to go live with Jesus instead. And they mm. totally accepted that answer. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it oh. opened up amazing dialogue about heaven and Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're three and they're yeah. just like, well, okay, why can't she come live with, you know, they asked a few more questions still to this day. They ask like every now and then, why couldn't baby June come live with us? Mm -hmm. And when I was pregnant with Shelby, they would say, is Shelby going to get to come live with us? <laughs> you know, um, or is she going to go to heaven? And I would tell them reluctantly that Shelby was going to come live with us. But I was like, I hope I'm right. Mm. Um, you know, but it's up to God. It's up to God. But, yeah, you know, Lord willing, Shelby's going to come live with us. And so um, they were so excited. To, I mean, and they became big sisters with June. Um, when I knew that she was going to pass, you know, I, every night we would read a story. We would read it to June too. We would sing to her. Um, you know, and so I did things and bought them big sister shirts. I did things so that they would remember and know that they were being really good big sisters, mm. you know, even when she was still in my belly. Yeah. 
And um, in terms of marriage, I mean, I just think, um, I don't know. I feel like um, we were in like overdrive and deep life changing and stressful situations and decisions. Um, we wish we'd never have to make as a couple, right. you know, and, um, you know, prior to, prior to June, you know, we had had a couple miscarriages. We raised young twins. We went back to school. We mm. changed careers. We moved a few times. Um, and then we, had moved and this had happened. And so really in the course of our marriage for the seven years prior to that, things were kind of crazy and we were really good at connecting in crisis, really, Mm. really good um, at communicating and connecting in crisis. But I think a year later or so after June and the dust settles and you look at each other and we felt so disconnected. Mm. I think we had forgotten how to connect just like in the everyday yeah. And so we're working on that still and it's, you know, it's getting better and we're remembering, but, um, I, I mean, and I don't feel like it was all because of grief or anything. I literally think it was, it was crisis. These yeah. crisis situations are, our, uh, um, relationship was making decisions and, you know, uh, being a, a team, but not really like a couple. And so we were learning, relearning all of that, um, how to connect just in the everyday. Yeah. Still, I mean, I think that's probably true for so many people, not even, um, going through grief. There's, there's not much time for, you know, date night or talking about all kinds of, um, you know, those things that help you to connect when you're yes. going through crisis because it's, it's just, it's survival mode. It's kind of, oh, yeah, yes. it's just making it through. And I think that definitely survival mode. Yeah. Uh, not anymore though. And I'm so thankful yeah. for that. Um, until the next, <laughs> until the next trial. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, I mean, that's very, um, you know, very vulnerable of you to share that like, You know, sometimes connecting in the crisis is a little bit easier Mm -hmm. because it's sort of a forced thing where when things do settle down a little bit, which I mean, granted, (laughs) this is life. I don't I don't know how long else they'll settle down for. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes that can be really challenging because it's like you handle this and I'll handle this and this is how we're going to make it through. And then when it's, you know, let's let's help our marriage grow. Let's help. Let's help each other grow, you know, in this time of of somewhat calm. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's, that is challenging. Yeah. So um, I guess what sort of brought us or brought you back into my, into my life in a way was when you were sharing through something called the Ebenezer Collective. And that's mm-hmm. something that really caught my attention. And mm-hmm. um, I would like, can you share a little bit about that with us? Sure. Yeah. Ebenezer Collective. Um was an online ministry that some friends and I um, had developed um, that really played a huge part in my healing um, through this. But, um, you know, we were encouraging, I say were, because we actually don't do it anymore. Life got kind of crazy and busy, and unfortunately, we couldn't keep up um, 
all of, you know, our roles and, and prayerfully we kind of shut it down. But, um, a couple of days before this doctor's appointment where we got the news something was significantly wrong with June, my friend, um, Amanda, I just moved to Dallas two days before. And, uh, my friend Amanda had come to me, like we were at a play date and she came to me with this idea that she had, that she was called to tell her story. And as she did that, she used Facebook as her platform, mm-hmm. um, when she wrote her story. And as she did that, after doing that, she felt that God was saying, well, why not everybody? Why just you? Everyone should be telling their story. And so, um, we, so she really had this vision to create a platform for people to tell stories, um, of how God had moved in their life and how God had been good. Um, and her idea for Ebenezer Collective, um, came from first Samuel when Samuel sets up a stone to declare that God had helped them win a battle. And he sets up a stone and calls it Ebenezer, Mm. uh, which means so far the Lord has helped me. Um, And so it's really just writing your story. It, It was a, it was online you know, a written form. It's basically what you do, Stephanie, but written form, Okay. you know, um, where you write your story and share it and um, share about like, you know, how God has helped you and the goodness. Um, And by doing that, you're setting your stone. And Mm. these are all stones of remembrance. um, So that during times, that we need to remember. And usually for me, it's times when things are going well. Like I need to remember how faithful God was in the desert. Right. Um, And, you know, going back and even preparing for this, going back and reading all that I had written and going through my journals and things, um, you know, it had um, really served as, you know, forcing me to write my story and share it served as a huge part of my healing. And so um, we had several, many people share on that platform. There's still a website. I don't know if you have show notes or anything where you can put the link up. Yeah, I'll put the link up for that. Yeah, I'll have to send it to you because uh, we didn't pay a host anymore. So the website's kind of sad, (laughs) uh, really hard to navigate, (laughs) but it's there. And, um, maybe, maybe someday we can get all, you know, back on a better website. But, um, yeah, I thank God for all of those stories and for that ministry, because I mean, it literally started, I think I had written the first Ebenezer collective story, um, as I was going through the whole thing, I didn't know the outcome of June at the time. And I wrote a story. And so, I mean, it started with God allowing me to share what I was going through currently and then ended about a year ago. I wrote one of the last stories and it was the whole story that I just told you guys. And so, um, in my life, it has been so instrumental for me, and I feel that like God put it there for me. But He also used it in so many ways in my friends' lives, and also the people who were so vulnerable to share. Yeah, 
Um, and so, you know, when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, I've got to do it. Mm. You know, um, I'm scared, <laughs> I'm nervous, but I've got to do it because that's what I've been preaching is sharing your story. And I hope that I get opportunities to share more because I don't want to forget. And I want to, you know, hopefully encourage people that might be going through similar situations or know somebody. Right. Well, I mean, just based off of what you shared about um, not really talking to your coworkers about what you were going through, at least you know, before anything was like final. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that shows that how most people feel about this stuff, which is, um, I, I, I don't really want to share it. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. have to do it any more than I have or than mm-hmm. it's required. And you had just moved to this new city and you're surrounded mm-hmm. by some people that, you know, they may be old friends, but they weren't your people that you had leaned on for all those years in, in Austin. And, Mm. You know, I think it was, it's really amazing that, you know, God gave you the strength to share and he gave you this platform to share. And you could have easily in this time just sort of isolated yourself. But mm-hmm. I think that your sharing is what brings so much glory to God and it um, honors him so much and well, helps, thank you. you know, thank you. Um, and it helps so many other people because, um, you know, for whatever reason, it feels like pregnancy stuff is is very hard to talk about. And I think maybe part of that is because it's it's kind of hidden sometimes, and mm-hmm. um, and people really don't know what to say. And um, if they've never been through it or been near enough to somebody that it it hurt bad enough, I guess, then mm-hmm. they they might say the wrong things. Is what they kind of are afraid yeah. of, and. I mean, I'm afraid of that still. Oh, oh definitely. <laughs> through it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, I but think- in terms of community, um, like through Ebenezer Collective, mm-hmm. God had brought me, you know, it was, so it was me and two of my friends who were pre, like when I used to live in Dallas, they were in my community group. So I got to reconnect with them and then two more girls. And so there were five of us and I, they were my people during yeah. that time. Mm. Um, they had all different communities and things going on in their life. But like, to me, they were my only people yeah. at that time, besides my coworkers who I, I didn't have a lot of relationship with right. um, because I just started. Mm-hmm. And um, so if God hadn't brought Ebenezer Collective in my life, I wouldn't have had that tight community of girls. They were my prayer people they were um who i checked in with every day through that whole thing um so god was so faithful through to use ebenezer collective in my life during that time god is at work even when the situation seems most hopeless i'm so incredibly thankful for his goodness and his faithfulness make sure that you look out for part two of my interview with lauren which will be released soon. And subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss a single episode. Thanks so much for listening, and remember to stay faithful.